Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. Bharati Jagdish with you. Now, after two years of recess, the World Economic Forum returned to Davos to discuss the mounting economic issues posed by the lingering pandemic and, of course, the Russia-Ukraine war. Discussions on Ukraine were at the top of the agenda with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's address opening the meeting early in the week. The WEF will revert to January for its 2023 annual meeting in the Swiss ski resort of Davos after moving to the spring for the first time this year due to the coronavirus pandemic. But what did they really achieve? Pushan Dutt, Professor of Economics at INSEAD, joins us on the line to talk more about this. Hi, Professor. Hi, good evening. How are good you? evening. Thank you for joining us today. Well, in the past, analysts have said that the Davos consensus can be a useful contrarian indicator since it's often entirely wrong, isn't it? But this year, Professor, there isn't even a consensus, some analysts note, about the global economy, for instance. What are your key takeaways from what's happened in Davos? So we see a growing sense of foreboding, if not panic, amongst the business leaders, the political leaders, economists, etc. In fact, the uh, managing director of the IMF said that the global economy faces its biggest debt since the Second World War. Now, I think this is a little bit overwrought, uh, you know, but there are some things to worry about. Now, three things are at the heart of this worry. So one is the conflict in Ukraine. The second thing is the rising inflation, which central banks are struggling to control, and even people are talking about stagflation. And finally, asset prices are correcting sharply. Some of the markets uh, have actually pushed into bear territory. Now, all of these things are interrelated in the sense that, you know, the war in Ukraine is putting pressure on food prices, fuel prices, creating inflationary pressures. Central banks uh, are struggling because these are negative supply shocks, the Ukraine war and the China COVID lockdowns, whereas the policy instruments that they have mainly target demand. And once asset prices start declining, it sets off like a gloom and doom loop where everyone becomes pessimistic and starts thinking about cutting back spending. So these issues are front and center at the WEF, uh, World Economic Forum. In my opinion, it's a good thing because usually topics at Davos tend to be quite faddish. A new idea will emerge like CSR, stakeholder capitalism, but then it quickly fades away. Uh, today, at least the discussion is uh, on more serious topics that really matter, like superpower rivalry, alliances, resilience of supply chains, tackling of climate change, etc. But are they just mere discussions? I mean, can we expect any substantial changes in the way countries conduct themselves, substantial cooperation in certain areas, perhaps? So in the longer term, I think the biggest arena where cooperation is really needed is on the climate change aspect, because that's sort of like an existential threat to to our way of life, to economic growth and things like that. In the short term, I think uh, there will be a focus on preserving the sovereignty of countries. A lot more attention has to be given to the new emerging uh, international order, because we no longer live in a unipolar world and there has to be recognition amongst all sets of countries that you know we live now in a multipolar world we already see there is tensions but there are two axes forming one has china russia and some other countries and the other side has us europe uh, i hope that all of these uh, these meetings will be useful in terms of uh, you know encouraging competition in certain respects 
but also recognizing that we do need serious cooperation, whether it's climate change, whether it is the next pandemic, etc. It's not the case that either the U.S. or China can go it alone. What are your views on Volodymyr Zelensky's address to the gathering? Did he make any headway, you think? So I think, uh, you know, uh, the different parties have lined up on different sides and their positions are sort of staked out. So at margin, I do not think that his speech would have made a major difference given the seismic changes that have taken place, changes that include, you know, Germany increasing its defense budget, Sweden and Finland deciding to join NATO, uh, you know, China thinking very carefully about, uh, about the international order, uh, countries, the BRICS, the other BRICS countries thinking about, you know, should they think about going back to non-alignment. So these things, I think, uh, have all been triggered by the, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the speech, per se, I don't think is going to make a whole lot of difference. Uh, at the same time, from the Ukrainian perspective, it's important that pressure be maintained and, you know, support uh, both in economic terms and in terms of uh, military aid continues to flow into Ukraine. So any forum uh, where, you know, he can actually stand up and claim that he is actually the the bulwark in Mm. Western Europe that's going to be useful from Ukraine's perspective. Where do you see this Russia-Ukraine conflict going now at this point? So uh, the first thing to note is that all of Russia's aims, initial aims, have not been realized. Russia ostensibly invaded Ukraine to keep Ukraine out of NATO. And what they have achieved is they've added something like 1,000 miles of borders with new NATO countries, which would be Sweden and Finland. You know, the popular support within Russia is very difficult to gauge. So, uh, But they seem to be declining from, at least from some of the numbers that I have seen. Now, where does this conflict end? Uh, Keep in mind that conflicts uh, do not end quickly. So if you think about the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, that took about 10 years. Similarly, the U.S. invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, that also took a long time. The Syrian conflict continues. So, uh, So a low intensity conflict might actually persist for a very long time. Now, how does this end? I think it depends on the Ukrainians. It is very easy uh, to write op-eds and, and think pieces, uh, you know, claiming that, you know, this is what the Ukrainians should do and, you know, they should go in for a ceasefire, go in for negotiations. But ultimately, the Ukrainians will have the biggest voice in terms of, and of course, the Russians, in terms of, you know, how long the conflict lasts and, and when it actually comes to an end. Now, elsewhere, Professor, U.S. President Joe Biden formally introduced the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework this week during his first Asia tour, revealing Washington's, of course, long-awaited APEC economic strategy. Analysts and observers say that the agreement lacks teeth. It is more symbolic than it is effective or even real policy. What are your views on it? What is this IPEC, as it's been called? The short answer is that no one knows. <laughs> it, is, it is just too early to tell. So at this point, it's more symbolic than anything. I think the U.S. is signaling that the Trump administration was an anomaly and that it is, again, serious about the Asia-Pacific region. The, that they are going to build alliances, both uh, military alliances, economic alliances, and eventually, you know, this might uh, lead to something close to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which the uh, Trump administration actually exited from. 
So the current uh, communique from the IPA uh, of, uh, about this about this uh, agreement, not agreement, sorry, the IPEC as it's called, it's about mm-hmm. a one page long and has just four pillars which are extremely broad. Uh, what is important to note is that there's nothing about trade and market access. Mm. And this is what the Asian partners are really keen on. That's what they want. They want, they want it to be about trade and market access. In fact, the Japanese have pleaded with the U.S. to join the T- TPP, rejoin the TPP. But the Biden administration has been completely unresponsive. Now, why is there no trade in it? Because trade has become politically a minefield in the U.S. So... Keep in mind, uh, not only did Trump not support the TPP, Hillary Clinton, his opponent, also did not support the TPP. So I do not see any support in the U.S. Congress from either Democrats or the Republicans for this. So what Biden is trying to do, do is keep trade out of it. This provides greater flexibility to Biden because it doesn't have need con- congressional approval and he can make this act go through with the stroke of a pen. Yeah, so that's the thing. It's a technical thing, right? And it will also allow Biden to engage more productively with China in terms of the economic flows that China might control in the Indo-Pacific. It is at the center of the region's supply chains, isn't it? So how do you see that side of that dimension of this framework panning out in terms of the U.S.-China relationship? The entire pact is, the framework is organized around uh, China. So I think China is an integral part in the U.S.'s thinking and China's uh, strategic moves are also part, are also will be affected by what the U.S. is uh, is actually doing. So one of the things to notice is that within the U.S. there is rare bipartisan unity on Ukraine and China. Okay, Now, both uh, Ukraine and China, the focus has primarily been about security, right? You know, arming the Ukrainians and Biden uh, jettisoning decades-long policy of strategic ambiguity vis-a-vis Taiwan. Agreements on economic cooperation are a lot harder. Now, the pandemic has given a big boost to the fact that, you know, supply chain uh, chains are no longer that resilient and they will, there is an ongoing move to regionalize the supply chains or actually build supply chains which are not solely reliant on on China, so build sort of two kinds of supply chains. From China's perspective, I think they should should focus on the security component and not get too worried about the economic component. China still sits at the heart of the global economy, and its interests align with the U.S. to a large extent in keeping the economic order in place. So China is doing that. They are promoting something called the Global Security Initiative, which Mm. is a serious alternative to the current world order. They've got some declarations of support from Uruguay, Indonesia, Nicaragua. Not a very impressive set of countries outside of Indonesia, but they're hoping that the BRICS countries, uh, the rest of the BRICS, will actually also be supportive. So expect a pivot from China. Uh, The big pivot that China is likely to make is that they're no longer going to use things like the Brick and Road Initiative to build alliances, which, which puts economics at the center of it. But instead, they will be putting security and sovereignty at the center of what they hope will be an alternate international order. We are seeing some tensions currently again between the U.S. and China. And of course, its engagement, the U.S.'s engagement with Taiwan. At this point, statements that Anthony Blinken made are under scrutiny. What's your perspective on where all of this is going at this point? So I think a lot of this will hinge on how the Ukrainian, uh, how the war in Ukraine pans out. So prior to the war in Ukraine, most of most uh, of the 
the people who who think or at least forecast, you know, China's moves were predicting that, you know, China would try to reunify Taiwan with itself. But the Ukraine war has shown that even a large superpower might find it very difficult to actually take on a a country even of, of small size like Ukraine. So I think everyone is still watching how the Ukraine war sort of pans out. How does Russia come out looking towards the end of it? And in the meantime, there has also been a shift in terms of U.S. military strategy as well, just observing the Ukraine war, because they're seeing how things like drones and, you know, using cell phones and, and very, you know, basic technology, you know, they're using that to stop a gigantic Russian army. So so they're also trying to shift uh, strategy, military strategy, in terms of, you know, thinking about what kind of weapons Taiwan should buy, you know, so that they can actually be somewhat like a Ukraine in case there is a conflict with, between Taiwan and China. Many thanks for your analysis, Professor. We've been speaking with Pushan Dat from INSEAD. Thanks for joining us today. You stay safe and take care, sir. Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.